0: I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, greetings and salutations, folks. This is Paige. Welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Paige. I hope you're having a fabuloso day. Um, it's a good day to be me. I've got my coffee. I've got you, my friends, and I've got the Bible. What more could a guy want? Really, seriously. Hello, Henry. It's good to see you, my friend. All right. One of the neat things about doing devotionals like this and thinking with my mouth open, and, and believe me, I, I consider this an advantage, is that as I go through and discuss the passage at hand with myself and with you, I... I come up with more questions. And they're usually questions on the periphery, not questions dealing directly with what does this Bible verse say Um, exactly. Uh, That actually is not that hard to determine if you follow some basic rules of context and understanding a little bit about the culture and everything, who wrote the letter, who's receiving the letter. It's not hard to understand what Paul is saying in these passages. But what's on the periphery Those questions I find particularly interesting. For instance, here's the one I'm pursuing right now. Paul was a Pharisee, right? A tribe of Benjamin. Um, A great theological mind. Probably uh, one of the most brilliant minds that the church has ever produced. His understanding of Judaism would be incredibly deep and wide. And yet God has called him to bring the gospel to a people who could really care less about Torah, the Jewish world, the Jewish customs. And his message to the Gentiles was primarily salvation is, justification is by faith and God's grace, not God's grace and circumcision, God's grace and following uh all of God's laws in the Torah. Yet God still Paul, excuse me, Paul still encouraged his Jewish believers, I'm sorry, his Gentile followers to be observant of at least the first tablet of the law. And by the first tablet I mean the first group of commandments, the 10 commandments deal with man's relationship with God. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. I am the Lord, your God. You will have no other God before me. His insistence on uh, making God their sole focus. Because see, in that world, there's a pantheon of gods. Families had their own gods. Communities had their own gods. Cities had their own gods. Diana in Ephesus, she was Ephesus' patron god, goddess. And there were uh, Gentiles who were God-fearers who would fellowship at synagogues, and I'm just discovering this, but they weren't necessarily exclusive followers of Jehovah. They honored the God of the Jews, but they still had their family gods. To them, a lot of their uh, gods in the communities they lived in It was a historical, generational uh, thing that was passed down from generation to generation. Every family had a god or goddess that uh, they referred to and kept within the fellowship of their home and their culture. Paul demanded that they set all that aside. That's what made Paul's message pretty unique within the Gentile community. Worship God only, not any of these other gods. So... There was there were aspects of the Jewish faith that Paul expected his Gentile followers to follow. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love the neighbors yourself. That is entirely a Jewish thing. And it makes sense because Messiah was Jewish. And Jesus said he didn't come to do away with the law. He fulfilled it and its obligations. But that doesn't remove the responsibility of pursuing it. So, to a degree, Paul did impact his followers with his Jewish beliefs, the ones that were relevant. Now, there were aspects of the Jewish law that grew up outside of the Ten Commandments, which were goofy as a loon. But the core of it, Moses' Ten Commandments still are worthy of discussion and worthy of pursuit Worship God only. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Don't covet, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. These things are still worthy and are, are to be part of the Christian life. So it wasn't that Paul went to the Gentiles and just said, look, you can be saved, don't worry about being Jewish at all. Truth is, there was Jewish spices added to the soup. <laughs> I guess that's the crudest, probably stupidest way I can put it. So uh, so that's the, these are my thoughts in the periphery. And the other thought in the periphery was, was Paul still a Torah-observant Jew? Even though he was preaching to the Gentiles, did Paul pursue observing Torah in the fullest possible way that he could? So that's where I'm at right now with that. Because, and the reason this comes up, is that Paul is being chased around, and we've already discussed this a little bit. Paul is being chased all over Asia Minor and Greece and uh, by Judaizers. And some of them apparently are connected with the Jewish Christian church in Jerusalem. And they keep wanting to make Paul's disciples, Paul's converts, if you will, God's converts under Paul's ministry would be a better way of putting it, Make them as Jewish as possible. Become circumcised. Um, observe all the feasts and all the customs that current day Jews were required to follow. And that was Paul's greatest struggle was against these people who would come in after he had established a church and then try to convert his Gentile followers into Gentile slash Jewish followers. Do you get what I'm saying? So the, that's an issue that's come up. And I began to see, and my heart is broken. And I mean that sincerely. My heart is broken for Paul. Because the guy can't cut a break. Um, it, he said, in his, and we talked about it yesterday, he received 39 lashes multiple times from Jewish communities because they believed he was a traitor to the Jewish cause and that he was taking the glorious truth of Jehovah, delivering it to the Gentiles without requiring any or next to no adherence to Jewish traditions. They considered Paul a heretic. And there were, apparently, there were there was contingent within the Christian community that considered Paul a heretic because he wasn't, again, he wasn't Jewish enough or he wasn't teaching his followers to be Jewish enough. Messiah was a Jew. The original 11 disciples are Jewish. Paul, you're Jewish. Why your hesitance to make the people that come to Christ under your ministry, why the hesitance in making them Jewish Torah observant so Paul Paul had it from all sides Uh, he was persecuted by his Jewish brethren and apparently he was also persecuted by elements within the church so that's that's the core of, of the big issue that's happening here in Corinth apparently after he established the church he'd gone back to Ephesus and he wrote the first letter to them from Ephesus and vet, and apparently he visited he visited visited he visited them once while he was in Ephesus, and these false apostles came in after the fact and tried to take over and build upon his work and tried to negate his influence, and to turn their attention away from Paul. That's the heart and soul of Second Corinthians. So now, having said that. Let's look at chapter 12 and see what Paul has to say. As a uh, preface to this, uh, we've talked a little bit about it because in 11 it's he begins what's called his fool's speech. In it Paul describes his ministry in terms that could not possibly be equaled by the false apostles. Yet he doesn't boast about his own knowledge or speaking skills or other abilities, but how much he has suffered for the sake of Christ here, Paul's boasting is ironic. He boasts of things normally considered shameful. His prison imprisonment, his receiving lashes, his, all his sufferings, signs of weakness and defeats. Thus, his boasts are an imitation or a parody of the boasting of his opponents who praise themselves to the Corinthians in extravagant speeches. The topics in this section we're talking to Progress to a climax where Paul deals with what may have been uppermost in the minds of his critics, unusual religious experiences. Paul says now, verse one, I must go on boasting, although there's nothing to be gained. I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Apparently that was one of the calling cards of these interlopers that they touted visions and, and mighty things that God has shown them. And, uh, Uh, Can I see that today. I see folks who are boasting about what God has shown them. Uh, And Paul's approach to this is different because he had one of these. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body. I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself, except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. Again, that's a sidewise slap at these false apostles. They're not speaking truth. They're just boasting and they're making things up. But I refrain So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's striking that in his boasting, Paul testifies about a request that God did not fulfill. That doesn't follow the pattern of these boasters, these false apostles, how God did incredible. I, I remember seeing one time, and this made me incredibly uncomfortable, uh, a popular um, speaker in the Charismatic Church's uh, world where they were talking about the promises of God. and But they were approaching, when God gave them a promise, when there's a promise in the scripture, they would approach it from the standpoint that this gave them authority to demand of God that he fulfill his promise. And you'd hear them in their prayers. Lord, you said this, make it happen. And then they would also carry it one step further and they would say, since the Bible says that angels are servants, they would, in their prayers, order angels around. Now, it sounds ludicrous today, but it was a very big deal back then. And they would order angels to go in front of them to do battle with spiritual Enemies and to accomplish this thing or that thing for them. It 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 made them the god. And they were holding God to his contractual obligations to them. Doesn't that sound? Oh, I don't know. What's the word? Blasphemous. God is sovereign. You don't order order God to do anything. And yes. Angels are servants, but it says in the Bible, for a little while, he's made us lower than the angels. That little while is like now. Angels are still above us, humans, in the hierarchy of things until we go home to be with Christ, the Messiah. But right now, for a little while, we're made lower than the angels. You don't order them around. You know, every time an angel shows up in the Bible, People get scared. So that's proof to me these people never saw a real angel. Now, I digress. That happens to me on occasion. It's striking that in his boasting, Paul testifies about a request that God did not fulfill. Um, that's kind of proof that Paul is speaking truth to me. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, Paul says, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Paul's spiritual view was so clear that he could see his sufferings as reasons for rejoicing because he knew that in them all of Christ's power was at work. See, God is sovereign, and here's what sovereignty means to me. He is the God of all my circumstances, good and bad. God's mission in the life of Paige is to mold Paige into the image of his son. He's going to do what he has to do. He's like a master craftsman who takes a big, ugly chunk of rock, to would be me, And over a lifetime, works on this rock, chipping, sanding, uh, polishing, to mold this rock into something beautiful and glorious. And in the process, sometimes he takes a hammer and a chisel and knocks off huge chunks. Can you say, ouch? Other times he polishes with a gentle rag. But his goal is the same. And whether he's knocking off things with painful blows of a hammer or whether he's polishing things with a soft, glorious uh, polishing rag, it's all the same. It's still God who's fashioning me into the image of a son. And sometimes that requires pain. Sometimes that requires suffering. Sometimes that requires the loss of things. God will complete his plans for me. You know, it's it's like the little kid who comes down Christmas morning and there's horse manure all over the bottom of, floor of the house. The parents come down and they are just like, the mom is freaking out. The son is jumping up and down with glee, laughing and giggling. And his mom says, what in the world are you thinking? He says, oh, mom, look. And he points at all the horse manure. There's a pony here somewhere. <laughs> That's that child's attitude is a light representation of what Paul just says here. Paul says, I delight in weaknesses, and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. Now, about this vision that Paul had. None of the visions recorded in Acts can be identified as this one that Paul is talking about since it occurred 14 years before the time of his writing, therefore in his silent time between his conversion and when Paul reappears on the scene. Paul's expression of man in Christ refers to himself. How do we know that? Well, he knew the exact time the revelation took place, that his content was beyond words, even if it were permissible to try to communicate. The revelation was directly receded to the receipt of a thorn, which was given to Paul. Paul will not likely feel embarrassment about boasting on another person's behalf. For Paul to relate a remarkable experience that happened to someone unknown to the Corinthians would scarcely fit this context. He's in a battle with the false apostles, and right now he's putting his experiences up against theirs. The scene of the vision was a hidden paradise of Jewish thought, the abode of the righteous dead that is here located within the third heaven. If Paul was quite certain of the location of the vision— He was uncertain about whether the experience happened in his body or apart from it. Consciousness of God totally eclipses any awareness of the physical world of space and time. What Paul heard and saw, human words were inadequate to relate. Furthermore, he was not permitted to try to share the content of the revelation, perhaps because it was something designed for him alone, to fortify him for future service and sufferings. Glimpses the New Testament does give of the coming glory are intended to strengthen the faith and promote holiness, not satisfy curiosity. Back in the seventies, again in the charismatic movement, the, it was seemed to be the uh, the thing to share unusual and powerful and and uh, ginormous spiritual experiences, and people would go from this meeting to that meeting, from this church to that church, from this speaker to that speaker to hear these incredible stories. Paul never shared incredible stories about his spiritual experience to satisfy curiosity. He saw it all within the context of God molding Paul into what he wanted. Now, Paul goes on, verse 11, I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you. In other words, he's saying, you should have been defending me to these super apostles. I'm not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I'm nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs and wonders and miracles. How were you inferior to other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me this wrong. Again, Paul is fluent in the language of sarcasm. Signs of a true apostle. According to common understanding, the signs of a true apostle were simply miracles, wonders, and mighty works. Yet... Throughout this epistle, Paul points to other marks that distinguish him from false apostles. The changed lives of the Corinthians, the blameless character of his ministry, his genuine love for his churches, his sacrificial endurance of suffering. In addition to these marks, Paul is ready to mention miraculous signs, but not to dwell on them. Paul's saying, look, I suffered for you. I thought so much of you that I suffered for you, in order to bring the message to you. What are these other apostles doing? What have they done for you? Nothing. They just come in and want to take over. Like that gentleman I mentioned uh, yesterday who got his theolo- the- theology degree and expected to step into a large church as a pastor because of that degree. And the truth of the matter is he wasn't ready to suffer. He wasn't ready to uh, suffer for the kingdom. He wasn't willing to take on a small church and move up. He wanted to step right in into a large church that somebody else had already built up. And that's what these false apostles were doing. They were trying to step in and just take over from Paul without having to deal with the suffering involved in building up a body of believers like that. Hmm. Now I am ready to visit you for a third time, and I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. Unlike those false preachers whose goal was their own financial reward. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? Again, sarcasm. I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus didn't exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? (laughs) We've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Now, that's what this, this is a curious statement to me. Because have you been thinking how long we've been defending ourselves to you? My first answer would be, well, yeah. Paul, that's exactly what you're doing. You're defending yourselves to them. But Paul's response to that question caught me by surprise. He said, we've been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. Everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. All right, the thought occurred to me, it's kind of like a, a basketball or a football coach. They prepare their team, right, for battle on the field. They prepare their team. They teach them plays. They teach them the discipline of football, or you know, the disciplines associated with their sport. And then they put them out in the field. And these players, they don't play the way they want to. They play according to the plan that the coach instilled in them. They play according to the disciplines that the coach instilled in them. They are an extension of the coach on the field. They're not out there playing for themselves. They're really enforcing the coach's will on the playing situation. Basketball or football coach, they train and prepare their par- players to play. And as the players perform on the field, they're performing under the watch eye of the coach. Everything they do on the field is to fulfill their coach's plans for them and the team. The baseball, on the baseball diamond, those nine players, they work together because that's what the coaches taught them to do. They're not out there by themselves. They're not not nine individuals, they're a team. Paul is saying, all this stuff that I've been saying, I'm speaking in the sight of God. I'm doing what God has called me to do. God has coached me. God has trained me. And I'm merely doing what God would have me to do. I'm not defending myself to you. I don't need to defend myself to you. If I never say another word to you about this, I it'll be okay because God is sovereign. He'll work all this stuff out. So I'm not defending myself to you like I'm desperately trying to hang on to something that's sliding away from me. I am speaking under the inspiration and the direction and the tutelage of the Holy Spirit. And you can almost say, See, that Paul is saying that uh, Paul, how do I put this? Paul understands the sovereignty of God. When, uh, when I went through bankruptcy years ago, and John, you remember this time. You and I went through the same period together. When I went through bankruptcy, I remember the day that we made the decision. My wife and I sat down, we wrote up. I had a checkbook, she had a checkbook. And we wrote up bills, paying bills. And she said at the end, how much money do you have left? I said, oh, I think 33 cents. I said, how much money have you have left? She said, oh, 22 cents or something like that. And I said, well, time to go see a lawyer. So we declared bankruptcy. Well, as I'm going to bankruptcy, it's a it's a shameful experience. It's a painful thing. I would have fellow believers come at me and say, we're praying against the enemy that he would quit harassing you. And I remember telling them once, and I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but sometimes I say things accidentally that are really smart, really intelligent. And it's like I'm having an out-of-body experience watching myself say something really smart, going, I hope somebody's taking notes because that was good. Well, this person came up to me and says, I'm praying that the enemy will quit harassing you. And these are the words that came out of my mouth. I said, I appreciate the prayers. But your focus is wrong. The enemy is not coming after me. God is teaching me. I am going into bankruptcy because of my foolishness, not because the enemy took anything away from me. I'm going into bankruptcy because I was foolish with my money. God is dealing with me. Pray that I see his will in everything. Something to that effect. And uh, they were a little bit disappointed in my response. Because to them, everything bad that happens to a Christian has a demon behind behind it. You know, there's a demon behind every bush. The, yeah, there's there's demonic influences out there. I get it. But sometimes our sin is a direct result of, well, us, and that's what this was. I was stupid with money, and I was paying the price. you, you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Paul gets that. So he's saying, I'm not defending myself to you. I'm doing what God has told me to do. For I'm afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be and that you may not find me as you want me to be. There's, there's a, a small threat there. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Ah, Paul, wow, my heart is broken for him. There's a lot to be discussed and not nearly enough time to discuss it. That's a beautiful thing because when I come around the cycle again and I come into 2 Corinthians again next time, maybe sometime next year, I'll see something else in here and I'll be able to attack Second Corinthians from a different angle. My thought this, this time around has been viewing Paul as a person, as a Pharisee, as a Jewish man bringing the gospel to a Gentile community. That's been my focus. Maybe something different will happen next time. Hmm. Huh. <sighs> well, that's it, ladles and jelly spoons. It's a as I said, it's a good day to be me. This is Mr. G. Here's my coffee. I am out of here. Bye-bye.